0: So, as we get to the end of this year and we roll into 2020, uh, it's going to be quite an interesting year with the election. And uh, there are going to be many debates, as there have already, if you've watched any of them. And the question really is this who is right? Who is right uh, in their platform, as they stand, and the things that they communicate to a vast audience and to the nation? Who is right? Who is most fit? Uh, to take the position or to continue in the position as president. And and I'm sure you have your personal preferences and you may stand on one side of the aisle or the other. But in the next year, I find myself being very uh, hesitant and already praying that it does not break out in um, just slander, an overall attack on a character, Uh, to boast oneself up, to make one seem as if they are the right choice and the only right choice. Uh, We live in a country uh, that has many freedoms and I'm grateful that one of the freedoms that we have is that we get to go and vote. We get to share an opinion. We get to have a say in leadership. But I want to make clear that when it comes to next November there's going to be much debate surrounding, um, the decision that's made. And when it gets down to it, when it whittles down to the very end, it's, it's going to be this, who is right? Who is most fit? And when we come to the scriptures today, we ask this question, who's right? The, the people, the Jews, those who believed in Jesus, they ask this question, are we not right? And so, As we look at this passage today in John 8, 48 through 49, the question is this, who is right? We're gonna be seeking to answer this question through today's message. So the question, who is right? Either man in his sin or Christ in his holiness. Uh, The sinful man would proudly boast, I am right. This man, Jesus, is an an imposter and dangerous to the Jewish religion. And for what all that Jesus has said about the Jews, for example, you are of your father the devil, which did not make them happy, by the way, to hear that, there is no room for polite indifference. Jesus leaves no room for polite indifference. This doesn't mean that Jesus was not polite and kind and caring, and that we as Christ's followers should not be kind and caring towards others. But when it comes to who is right, Jesus or sinful man, there's just no room for polite indifference. Either sinful man be right and justified or sinful man be guilty and condemned to the eternal lake of fire. Which is it? There's only one that is right. So today, if someone were to say, I respect Jesus, I think Jesus is kind. He's a nice person. I think Jesus did good things. But you would ask them, Do you follow Jesus? Do you acknowledge him as the Christ? If their response is no, then plain and simple, they do not belong to Christ Jesus. And they are children of their father, the devil. So this is the audience, and I I want to remind you, in John chapter 8, this is the audience that Jesus is speaking to. They said they believed in him, and once they got closer to Jesus, they realized, wait a second, I'm not quite sure on that belief. Maybe that's happened to you. Maybe you, you said you believed in Jesus, but the closer you got to scripture, you realized, I'm not so sure I believe. If this is true, that he is the Christ and they are children of their father, the devil, and God's word stands, then sinful man cannot possibly think happy and glad thoughts towards Christ. As it is demonstrated for us in this passage, these Jews gathered around Jesus, the ones who said they believed in him. Now they're calling him a Samaritan and claiming he is controlled by the reins of evil. That is not someone who believes that he is the Christ. So it is safe to say that this conversation has shifted quickly, for there's no room for polite indifference. If we were to say it a different way, there's no room for political correctness. We've heard that, haven't we? Over and over again, maybe you're very hesitant to speak out in public, whether it be in the workplace or in your community about what you believe about Jesus, because you're afraid you may offend someone. But yet, Jesus offended many. Jesus continues to offend people today, but Jesus was humble. And here's his humble reply. I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory, for there's one who seeks it and he is the judge. If you were in community group this morning or maybe you're meeting with a group tonight as you look at Isaiah 53, you will see this confirmed. Isaiah 52, he did not come to judge. So what did he come to do? He came to save. He came to do a great work. So number one, Christ is righteous and honorable. Christ is righteous and honorable. Christ honors his father, meaning he ascribes him glory, honor, and praise. And here before us, the humility of Christ is on display. He did not come to judge but he does trust in the Father to judge. So what did Christ come to do? Christ came to save. Therefore, with the humility of Christ on display, he shows a righteous restraint. He holds back. He holds back his anger towards those who are opposed to him because he knows that he is going to lay down his life six months from this point. He shows a righteous restraint. My, how this would help us in our day and time if we would show more righteous restraint. If we would have leadership show more righteous restraint instead of always trying to justify why they are right. It brings a lot of chaos. It brings a lot of confusion. It brings a lot of hurt, a lot of frustration. Jesus here shows a righteous restraint. Question I have for you is what is something that may cause you to fly off the handle? What is that for you? Speaking of handle uh, just recently at the house on a Saturday morning. Uh, I think it was the actual start to football season. And I was kind of giddy, a little excited about that. Um, and in the refrigerator, we had an extra chocolate milk, um, which there are two things that I will never outgrow, uh, that being mac and cheese and chocolate milk. And so my kids did not drink this chocolate milk. So I said, I'm going to take it. It was a plastic bottle, and and I decided to uh, show off for my wife because the way in which I want to show her that I'm a man is I do things just like this that I'm about to tell you. Um, I threw up the chocolate milk into the air and I went to catch it behind my back just so that she would be impressed with my skills. Um, And I dropped it, (laughs) believe it or not. Believe it or not, I dropped it. Um, So then I thought you know, I'm going to do it again. Like I got this. Hey babe, this time watch. You weren't watching the last time. And so as I threw it up into the air, I went to grab it and I thought I had it and it hit off my fingers, didn't have a handle on it and it hit the ground. But this time it busted and chocolate milk went throughout all of the living room. And when I say all the living room, all over the couch, all over the carpet, all over the walls, the baseboards, the floor, and my little daughter (laughs) (laughs) and my wife, my wife, the godly woman that she is, looked at me with righteous restraint, <laughs> but she gave me these eyes that could have put me to death. Um, as if to say, what were you thinking? And I, I wasn't really. Um, in fact, I was thinking as soon as it hit the floor, I thought, why didn't I use water? Like that would have been okay. That would have been better. Still show off, you know, whatever. But there, she, she withheld, like she was about to give it to me and she did not. And, uh, she politely even helped me clean up and asked me to go to the other room. (laughs) Um, so I said, yes, ma'am. And, uh, so, but a lot of times we fly off a handle because of, of inconvenience or annoying behavior like your husband. And we, we are quickly set off. And I don't know what that may be for you, but I I know I have my own things that I go through, little things that I just have very little patience for. Uh, But here Jesus models for us a righteous restraint. I mean, have you ever been falsely accused? Publicly humiliated? Physically threatened? Someone turned their back on you? All four of these things happened in one moment. As Jesus is standing around people, or people are gathered around Jesus, and he's standing there, and they're falsely accusing him, and humiliating him, and threatening him, and they're now turning their back on him. You see, he experienced all of these insults, but he was not enslaved to them. He was not enslaved to them. He showed a righteous restraint meaning he was not held captive by the critical accusations and the false assumptions of man. Jesus didn't get his feelings hurt because of the sinfulness of man. He knows how sick we are in our sin. Let us be thankful and glad for what Jesus teaches us here. The world's opinion does not dictate who we are no matter how loud or boisterous they may become or how many may come against us. Now let me be clear, this isn't an us versus the world type message, but I am driving home the point here that there are gonna be many who are opposed to this good news of Jesus Christ. But it does not dictate who you are. You see, from the Jewish point of view, Samaritans were worthless, wretched dogs, not even worthy to sit under their table and eat scraps. Samaritans did not honor God's law, but interestingly enough, neither did the Jews. Not like they thought they did. And then demons, even worse, they hate God and seek to destroy anything in one bearing the image of God. And as we look through scripture, we know this, no one bore the image of God better than Christ. And so, for them to call him a Samaritan and have a demon, they could not be more wrong. Because a person controlled by the devil is a liar, seeks to flatter men, it's inflated with pride, and seeks his own honor and fame. So, Jesus couldn't just say, Yeah, 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 I have a demon. You're right. I don't want to offend anybody. I want to kind of peacefully get out of this crowd. Yes, I'm sorry. I'm just controlled by an evil spirit. No, if he said that, then he would be a liar. And if he were to lie, he would not be the Messiah. And so we're placing our faith and trust in someone who is bold, someone we can depend on, somebody who will not back away or cower down. These men aim their questions in the wrong direction. Instead of aiming at the Christ who told them the truth, who walked in humble fashion and glorified the Father in every action, they should have pointed to themselves since, after all, they are children of Satan. But notice the humility of Christ as he remains divinely calm, divinely dignified, and divinely majestic in his answer. D.A. Carson says this, although Jesus has briefly responded to the charge of his opponents, the purpose of his coming and of all he has to say has been the salvation of his hearers, not personal self-promotion for you see self-promotion is a type of motivation for sinful man what does it mean it's to name brand oneself in order to prove that we are smart current relevant in style prosperous and in this context religious but when the humility and obedience of Christ is on display the Jews do not acknowledge it as good and God honoring, but view it as foreign Samaritan and sacrilegious. You have a demon. And here's why. Because sinners shun and abuse the righteous and honorable Christ. This is the position of the sinner. Now, I know that as we've gone through John chapter eight and as we've gone through the book of John, some of you have communicated already that you're almost growing weary of hearing how wretched and sinful man is. That's not going to stop. You see that in the scriptures and that does not have to lead you into a deep, dark place either. There has to be a backdrop to where we see our great need for Jesus And if we don't see that as sinners separated from God, that we're wretched, pitiful, and pure, or or not pure, but yet agree with the world to say that, you know, all of us start in a good place. If we don't recognize how much we need Jesus, then will we really appreciate the grace of God. So what's happening in John chapter eight? Let me tell you what's happening in John chapter eight. The light of Jesus Christ is shining. He says, I'm the light of the world. But it doesn't just stop with that comment. As John, the apostle, is writing this book, he is showing how the light of Christ is shining upon sinful man. And it is their responsibility to trust in him. But you know what happens when man, sinful man, is left to his own responsibility? 10 out of 10 times, 100%, he rejects the Messiah. That's what we're seeing here in John chapter eight. Even if sinful man says he believes, but yet is left to his own responsibility, he will reject the Messiah. This is what makes grace all the more beautiful because grace really is a gift. Grace really is something that's given to us and something that we did not deserve. Which leads to number two, who is right? Number two, Christ is eternally trustworthy. Because if Jesus is saying these things to these men and yet they're rejecting him, what they're rejecting is that he's trustworthy. But not only is he trustworthy, he's eternally trustworthy. And he says this, truly, truly, which that sounds really sweet, doesn't it? Truly, truly. But it's not meant to be sweet. It means a definitive statement is coming. It means most reliable, complete, providing a solution or final answer. It's, it's satisfying all criteria. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Wow, this is that moment where it's it's all come to this. You will never see death. And you would think that as they would hear this, being in the light of Jesus Christ, that they would go, sign me up. I want that. I don't want to see death. (laughs) Yes, I'm on board, Jesus. that's not the response and for death we don't like talking about death we don't like thinking about death death is horrible death's painful I mean if there was really a fountain of youth we'd all go jump into it right so that we could stay forever young so we could continue to make great memories and have a good time here on this earth but we know there's not really a fountain of youth um, but there are some really good age-defying creams out there And that's okay to use them. I mean, why not? Uh, But yet there are some who can maybe afford the next step beyond that, far beyond that. And and that's to um, maybe in Hollywood, we've seen some stars who have kind of, let's just say they've tightened their face a little bit. And and you look at them and you go, wow, you are of the age to where gravity sets in, to say it kindly. But yet you are defying it as, as best as you can. And yet you're defying it so much that as you stand and you receive an award or you stand and give an opinion on something and everybody's watching you, it just looks awkward. It just seems strange. What are we trying to do? Well, we're trying to hang on to life. We're trying to stay young. We don't like to admit that we're getting older. Because getting older means that we're getting closer to death. And we know that death can happen at any time, at any age, at any moment. But yet we know that the longer we're here on this earth, one thing that is certain to happen is that we will die. I don't know of a single person who has ever evaded the fear of death or escaped the painful sting of death. Some of you have experienced that just recently. And I want you to know that what Christ is saying here is freeing. It's freeing for the people. But what does it mean? I mean, the Jews didn't get it, and and we can easily miss it. I mean, Abraham did die, as did the prophets. Jesus died a death on the cross, the apostles all died. Death continues to haunt us and eventually wins over our physical bodies. So what does Jesus mean when he says he will never see death? What did he mean by that? Well, before we answer that question first, there is a command. He says, if anyone keeps my word. So what does it mean to keep his word? This word keeps in the Greek is tereo. It's the image of a, uh, a warden that guards the prison. He's standing on guard and he does not abandon his post, but always remains on guard you can rely on him to stay on guard to keep to maintain as opposed to evacuating and so to keep the word means that we hide the word of god in our hearts as we see in psalm 119 or let it saturate in our minds through memorization as we see in first corinthians chapter 15. so this year, memorize twenty nineteen has been about that. We want to hide God's word in our heart, so that we will not sin against God. You know, memorizing Scripture isn't just about um, becoming more fluent in the Scriptures. It really is about escaping sin. It's about honoring Christ. It's it's taking hold of His word. Memorization allows us to do this. It, it, it we we keep it within us so that it governs our lives. So when Jesus is saying he who keeps my word means he who is governed by me, the King of kings and Lord of lords. I govern your daily life. No matter where you live, what land you live in, whether you're facing persecution or you're in a land of freedom and peace, I govern your life. Is to behold Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Is to treasure, admire, embrace, submit to the one true Savior. To truly trust that he was the word who became flesh and who made his dwelling among us. It's to acknowledge that he has the words to eternal life so that we say with Peter from John 6, 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life this is how we keep his word. And it's important that we keep his word because those who keep his word will never see death, will never taste death. For you see, the word shapes our purpose for living. It brings delight to our weary souls. It convicts us of sin, leads to repentance, providing enjoyment and happiness in Christ. You're saying, sign me up for that. I want some joy and happiness and excitement in Christ. Keep his word. Treasure Jesus above all things. There are many things that we treasure, many things that we hold on to, many things that are dear to us. The question is, do you treasure the word? And he's telling these men, keep my word. If we keep his word, then we begin to speak more of Christ than we do of ourselves. And let me just go ahead and tell you, that's strange to be that way. It doesn't mean that you have to try to creep people out with hyper-spiritual Henry conversations where what we're putting on is a facade. It means that we're just genuinely in love with Jesus and that we would rather have many conversations about him than making all the conversations about ourselves. So to keep God's word, to treasure Christ is the first command followed by a promise. Keep my word and here's the promise. He will never see death. So we have to answer the question, what does it mean to never taste death? I mean, what happens at death? Maybe you're wondering that right now. If, if you were to die today, what would happen? What would happen to your body? What happens to your soul? Do you go into a type of soul sleep? So if you were to breathe your last breath today, would you just go into a time of darkness, a time of of rest there in the grave until Christ comes back? I mean, what happens to you? Well, we know this through scripture that the spiritual part of man, his soul, departs from the physical body of man and woman. So this which you love, that which you love about someone. As you have conversations with them and as you live life with them, the things you love about someone and the things that you may be offended by someone, their soul, if their soul is kept in Christ because they keep the word of God, then when they die, their soul goes to be with Christ immediately. Well, what about those who don't keep the word? their soul goes to hell immediately, which is right and just because they did not hold to his word. And there they wait for Christ's return, not with an expectation of salvation, but of judgment. And then their bodies will be called up and matched with their souls and judged guilty for not keeping the word of God and they will be thrown into the eternal lake of fire which never ends, never stops and never is satisfied where the wrath of God is placed upon them for all of eternity that is for those who will taste death so physical death is extremely difficult It leaves us at a loss for words, but spiritual death is far worse, and it's just as real. Although we don't see it with our eyes now, we trust the words of Jesus. You see, when we die, all that remains is the empty shell of the person we once knew here on this earth, So Christian, may you view your body as a gift from God, no matter if you like looking at yourself in the mirror or not, and knowing that God created you, God made you, and God keeps you here on this earth every minute of every day for his glory, to make much of him, to keep his word, to enjoy him. So if physical death is a separation of the soul from the body, then spiritual death is the separation of the soul from God. I think it's safe to say that for most of us, we have a fear of death. Maybe that keeps you up at night right now. Maybe you've been through a very dark season or you continue to go in this season and it's dreadful. You see, when we fear death, we really fear two things, I believe. Death's uncertainty and its significance. It's uncertainty because all we have to go on by ones who go before us is their testimony, is that they believed in Christ and we trust in God's word, but yet we have to trust that they truly believe. There can be a type of uncertainty. What will happen when I die? Will I still have my marriage when I go to heaven? Will I still have my family when I go to heaven? I mean, the thought of us being brought into a group of people as the bride of Jesus Christ, that may not be comforting to you right now. You may think, I don't want that. I would rather just have my family, my house forever and ever. There's something uncertain about this. God, are you sure? Are you sure that just bringing a redeemed group of people together, that we're going to enjoy that? Are you sure that we're gonna enjoy being in the presence of Christ for all of eternity? Are you sure that we're gonna enjoy being on a new heaven and a new earth with no pain and no suffering and no death? Are you sure we're gonna enjoy that? What about my loved ones who are not in that new heaven and new earth but have been cast into the eternal lake of fire? God, are you sure you know what you're doing? Now we may never phrase the question that way, but deep in our hearts when we have uncertainty, that's what we're communicating. But then also that it's significant. And let me add one more word. It's final. It hurts. It's painful. It's final. You don't, you don't hear the voice. You don't see them as they once were. So what did Jesus mean by saying we would never see death when death is all around us? War, Catastrophe, accidents, sickness, broken down bodies. I mean, if you still receive the newspaper, the obituary section always has reading material. There's always somebody to look for. This past week, I happened to be uh, checking on Facebook for certain information, and I came across an obituary. And I'll just tell you, his first name is man, this man's name is Corey. Uh, Corey and I met down at St. George Island on our vacation. Uh, I went to go get donuts one particular morning. Those things are a dollar a piece, by the way, but they're good. And uh, we, we stand in line and people get there 30 minutes before it opens. And Corey was two people behind me and we were having this conversation and, and we got to talking about physical diet and everything. And I don't mind having conversations about that. I mean, it's cool. I mean, after all, we're about to eat donuts. And so we're, we're having this conversation and then Corey says, yeah, man, I'm, I'm here on a, a, a make-a-wish trip. Uh, man, this may be the last vacation I take with my family. And he began to explain, you know, just the way he lives his life and, and the joys that he has and, and how he's feeling much better. And it was one of those moments where I was like, take hold of this, take hold of this moment, Brian, ask him more, ask him more. And I didn't. And two months later, I'm reading and uh, Corey breathed his last breath this past week. And it slapped me with this lingering question Where is he? Where is he? He was an incredible man. He was young. He has two girls and a wife. And man, it just broke my heart. In fact, man, I woke up that morning, Friday, man, and I just wept. And I don't mean to get this way before you, but I'm telling you, like, it just hit me in my soul. And I thought, man, Brian, this thing of death is so real. We have to embrace the moments given to us to speak the name of Jesus. I mean, death can be uncertain and it is painfully significant. But will you hear this today? It does not have to be final. It does not have to be final. It was not final for Christ who rose from the dead. And it is not final for all who are in Christ, who will rise from the dead. First Corinthians 15, starting in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, hear this, those who belong to Christ. Who are those who will be resurrected to be with Christ? Those who keep his word. For Christians, death is only the introduction to the nearer presence of God. It's an introduction to the nearer presence presence of God I'm not talking about those who are left behind to mourn in your absence but for the Christian for you when you die you go before the presence of God now for our theologians in the room I know what you're doing right now you're saying Brian God's omnipresent we're already in his presence but as we near the presence of Christ it's the fellowship that Adam and Eve had with God before the fall in the garden it's God honoring fellowship fully restored for eternity. This is our hope Christians, that we live forever and ever and ever. In a relationship fully restored, no guilt, no shame, no wanting to hide from God, but worshiping God for all of eternity. Romans 8:38 and 39 says for I am sure. You want to be sure today? Trust the word of God. Follow along with the Apostle Paul as he says, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wow. For I am sure. Can you say that along with the Apostle Paul? For I am sure. Do you walk with this confidence each day in Christ? For I am sure. I want you to take notice of something. What a loving and compassionate Savior we serve. He gives this command and speaks this promise to an audience that was aggressive, angry, and about to take up rocks and assault him. He's speaking this message to them, not people who are nice and kind to them. But understand this, this was our same position towards Christ until we were radically saved just as aggressive, just as hostile. You say, I I, I never picked up rocks to throw at God. I mean, where would I aim? (laughs) I don't see him physically. But if he was here before us and we're left to our own sinfulness, here we go picking up rocks to what he's saying. Isn't it interesting when we say someone was radically saved? Man, that person was radically saved as if anyone who is saved was not radically saved from a deep depravity of sin and separation from God. No sinner is closer to Christ than another sinner. If you are without Christ, then you are far away from Christ. Understand that today. You may be having a conversation with somebody and you go, oh, they're so close. They are so close. They're no closer than any other sinner without Christ. For a sinner does not take gradual steps towards Christ. He must be radically saved. That's every sinner. But notice this, Jesus does not give up on this crowd. He speaks to them. He shows compassion. He shows a righteous restraint. What can we learn from this? Jesus did not quickly give up on this crowd and may we not quickly give up on anyone no matter how radically lost they may appear to be to us. May we not give up. Because why? Number three, Christ is worthy of our worship and praise. He is worthy. Christ is worthy And we know that the only way that anyone can worship and praise him is by his grace. Jesus says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say, he is our God. So Jesus knows that self-promotion is cheap and often rejected. Let me say that one more time, just so we all get it here in the room. Jesus knows that self-promotion is cheap and often rejected. Uh, maybe you watched football yesterday or not. I know there are a few of you who like that sport, as do I. And a player crosses the goal line. And it's not enough that just cross the goal line, but they have, uh, players have this thing that they do today where they drop the ball and they go, boom, mm. hit the chest. As if to say, me, me, me. And a lot of times we live our lives as we pound our chest and say, it was me, it was me. It was me. William Barclay says it is not difficult to honor oneself. It is easy enough. In fact, fatally easy to bask in the sunshine of one's own approval. It's easy. And they ask him this question, who do you make yourself out to be? Can you imagine they're standing before God in the flesh and they're asking him, who do you make yourself out to be? But once again, notice the humility of Christ. He says, it is my father who glorifies me. The word glorifies means this, to give anyone esteem or honor by putting him into an honorable position. It's to honor someone who is to show our esteem for a person, to lead others to esteem he or she as well. Hey, come look at this. Come see this person. Come watch this person perform. You, you have to hear this song, the way they sing this song. Man, they, they nailed this song. Come hear it. Come esteem them. And Christ is saying, my father esteems me. The father's honor for the son is manifested by his love and admiration for him, as well as his desire to make him the loved and admired of others. Here are a few ways in which God honored his son while he was on earth. God honored him at his birth by sending angels to herald him as Christ the Lord. He honored him during the days of his infancy by directing wise men from the east to come and worship the young king. He honored him at his baptism by proclaiming him as his beloved son. He honored him in death by not suffering his body to see corruption. He honored him at his ascension when he exalted him to his own right hand. He will honor him in the final judgment when every knee shall be made to bow before him and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And throughout all of eternity, he shall be honored and we honored with him as a redeemed people who esteem him the fairest among 10,000 to their souls. Why? Because he is infinitely worthy. He is the lamb who receives honor and glory. So may we see to it that our daily lives honor him who has so highly honored us by calling us brothers, by calling us his bride, that we are a part of the same family, that he is of the first fruits and we follow him. For Abraham... He understood this. And although he lived 2,000 years before Christ's arrival on earth, he rejoiced that he would see the day. He saw it and was glad. Rejoice means to exult, to leap for joy, to show one's joy by leaping and skipping, denoting excessive or ecstatic joy and delight. Maybe some of you teenagers yesterday, when you scored a touchdown in the mud bowl, this is how you responded. You rejoiced. You skipped. You leaped. You leaped. You belly flopped into the mud. I mean, you are excited. But how did Abraham see in order to be glad? Hebrews eleven thirteen 13 says that all these died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. In one way, Abraham saw the day of Christ in type in offering Isaac on the altar and receiving him back in figure from the dead. He received a marvelous foreshadowing of the Savior's death and resurrection. So this is how Abraham saw. The Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And just to fast forward for a moment, the question is, who is right? The great I am. Uh, Jesus approached Moses as the great I am. And here's what he told Abram before he became Abraham when he was 99 years old. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God almighty. So who is right? The great I am. The one standing before them. And as he stands before us today, as we read this scripture, may you not miss him. May you acknowledge him as right. Because what is the response of those who reject Christ's righteousness and honor? They picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. You see, after Jesus replaces the Sabbath, saying that he is indeed the Sabbath, and the manna, the bread, that he is the bread of life and the water at the ceremony, saying that he has eternal water and and the light, saying that he is the light of the world. After he replaces all of these things of the feast of the tabernacles, yet before he is actually consecrated at the feast of dedication in John chapter 10, which we'll read next year, (laughs) to replace the tabernacle and temple he here symbolically leaves the temple grounds. Take notice of this. Look in your, in your Bible, if you will. He leaves the temple grounds, like the Shekinah glory abandoning the temple. He's now leaving the temple. Augustine once said, as man, Jesus flees from the stones, but woe to those from whose heart of stone God flees. For those who deny Jesus, there is a frightening death that awaits them, one much more final than physical death. And woe to you if you're one of those people today who just says, I've got tomorrow, man. I've got later in my life. I don't really know if I need Jesus. I'm a pretty good person. Woe to you. Will you see Jesus as the one who was right Because in his eternal death, and as we see in scripture, you know, nowhere in scripture, when we see of hell and the eternal like of fire, is there a picture of men and women repenting to want to follow Christ then? Even then, in that moment of torment, they still think that Christ is wrong. And that they are right. But for those who trust that Jesus is right, they have no need to fear. For those who keep God's word, you have no need to fear. Do you keep God's word? Are you holding on to it tightly? Are you trusting in what Jesus came to do? This is a time for you to really just analyze your heart according to the word of God, knowing that you will not taste death. Yes, we will face the sting of death while still here on this earth, but one day as we pass from this earth and when Christ returns and our bodies are reunited with our spirits there we will live with him forever we will never taste the ultimate death to come why will we not taste death because Christ tasted death for you as he drank fully from the cup of wrath so that we no longer get wrath we get God we get God do you believe this today you believe that Christ is righteous and honorable that Christ is eternally trustworthy and Christ is worthy of our worship and praise let us trust in Jesus let's pray father thank you for this message today as we close out chapter eight I find myself Lord looking forward to getting into John chapter nine as there will be a a people who will receive what Jesus says can be awfully heavy and even frustrating reading it 2,000 years later of a people that as Jesus stood right before them, they just kept rejecting him and yet still called themselves religious and righteous. Father, I pray that we're not those people that thinks that we're okay without Jesus or that all we need is just a little bit of Jesus. But may we take his word and hide it in our hearts. May we treasure it. May we trust him. May we know that he is the one who came to pay for our sin and to take on the wrath of God so that we get you, God. We get you. You are eternal life to know you. Father, thank you for your kindness and your grace and mercy upon us. May we go as a people who are aware of eternity, who have a better understanding today of what is to come, and may we live in Christ. First in Jesus' name we pray, amen.